This is Adam Lippi, writer, editor, publisher of RegrettableSincerity.com, and this is from my appearance on Morning Feed with Ed Feldman to promote the Media Mirror Cinema screening of Looking for Mr. Goodbar that was done back in September. Uh, now, originally, this was a very, very long interview. It went three and a half hours, but I've cut it down to relatively lean and mean two hours. That doesn't mean that you can avoid all of Ed Feldman's latching for younger girls, though I do make fun of him plenty. I didn't cut out too much of that stuff. Other topics include how to make a boring Lolita, me talking up uh, Drive as much as possible, the Tripod Quest documentary from last summer, the unfortunate mediocrity of Mike Nichols, the pitfalls of rote film criticism, the bogus ending of LA Confidential, and a lot of other things. This jumps around just as much as the other two that are currently up. Please enjoy. Ellington, Anatomy of a Murder, uh, tellingly a movie theme from the Otto Preminger movie of 1959, I believe, Jimmy Stewart, just a, a murderer's row of fine actors of the era, George C. Scott, Ben Gazzara, R- really, uh, and of course our guest today is Adam Lippi of Medium Rare Cinema, who uh, runs the obscure, the not obscure, the rare prints, the out of print movies at the video library each and every Thursday, correct, sir? That's correct. And tonight you are showing? Looking for Mr. Goodbar. Uh, we'll discuss Looking for Mr. Goodbar shortly. Of course, Anatomy of a Murder, really great juxtaposition, I think, of styles. Here you've got Jimmy Stewart, the quintessential Hollywood star, although he did appear on Broadway in Harvey, the original Broadway show, which performance he uh, repeated in in the movie about the uh, six-foot-tall rabbit. But here we have the Hollywood laconic movie star, along with some very, very intense, and by intense, sometimes I mean, mean ethnic, Sometimes I mean too ugly or dark for movies, so they pretty much stayed on Broadway and never really made it big in the movies. Broadway stars, although some of them after this film did, i.e. Ben Gazzara, i.e. George C. Scott. And I love that movie, but not only because I think it's maybe my favorite Preminger movie, who is has as wide a range of good to awful films as any mainstream director, I think. From, I think, Anatomy of a Murder at the top to Skidoo, as we were discussing. I would argue that Altman has the widest range of good to bad. Really? Yeah, have you ever seen Quintet? Yes, I have. And compare that to something like A Long Goodbye, which is only made five years earlier. There's an astonishing difference there. Yeah. Or or, or Pret-a-Porter to, well, anything (laughs) made in the last 40 years. Uh, Pret-a-Porter being at the bottom or at the top? At the bottom. Oh, at the bottom. Yeah, well, I do love Altman. The thing about Altman, during his salad days, there was such a rhythm to his productions. I mean, they were just being churned, literally churned, as if he knew he wouldn't be riding on the top of Kale's list forever, and he had to put out as much. So I forgive unevenness. In somebody like yeah, but he Altman. he went misanthropic. I mean, you know, anything after California splits just downright downright hateful. 
oh no, I really uh, enjoy Gosford Park a lot. No, no, no. What I'm saying is that the, the, he hates people, and and I, my theory has always been that <laughs> that uh, the ending to California Split, which is my favorite of his films, mm-hmm. where George Siegel walks away from the table, and it was an ending that was kind of made up on the spot and different from what was intended by the writer, who was a gambler himself. It's where his misanthropy really just kicked in. Like he just said, "All right, I give up." Maybe maybe his coke fueled behavior was at its worst at that point, but. After that moment, after that final scene in California Split where we realize it's all pointless, mm-hmm. everything that he made after that hates people, starting from Nashville on. I mean, Nashville couldn't be more misanthropic. It couldn't be more negative. It couldn't be more about making people look stupid. However, I believe the ending of, of California Split was a typical early 70s, we're going to look at these people for a while and then we're going to leave Ennui. I mean, it predates the 70s by the decade a little bit. I mean, at the end, first these endings began in movies that had some kind of hard-hitting issues and or violence. And the protagonist looks in the mirror like McQueen at the end of Bullet saying, what does it all mean? Guys shoot at me. I shoot at guys. I, uh, I, they miss. I hit. And, and it's just end there is no happy ending and of course that was end of hollywood as dream factory end of hollywood as happy ending heathcliff and what's her name walking into the clouds because what's his name said they had to even you know to denigrate the book and it just said no this is what life is shit happens and then you stop noticing it and sometimes you realize all for what the answer nothing and it starts there and it goes until well you know we've discussed this before until little stevie spielberg says enough with this reality let's go back to the dream factory because that's where the money is for the rubes and in that period after the warners and every old other uh schmata salesman died to the new schmata salesman lucas and spielberg and them taking over you had these movies where, frankly, it, it's what I said before. We watch these people for a while and then we go home, which is what reality is if that's your scope of, uh, of vision. Well, it the, is, you gotta, I'm watching these people for a while and then I'm going into this store. You, you also have <laughs> to realize that Lucas and Spielberg may, be, have, may have been capitalizing on, on a feeling, but... People had stopped going to the other. I think capitalizing is your uh, is your. Key well, yes, word I'm not suggesting that Spielberg and, and Lucas had you were pure at heart in any sense, but all the filmmakers who had been strong, controlling, you know, Coppola, Bogdanovich, they all at Friedkin, they all started to fall away, and not because they did something wrong, but because people stopped going to their movies, they lost control, and people can blame Star Wars or even Heaven's Gate on why directors lost control, but really the audience had stopped going because you know jaws is made 75 and then this progression is kind of slow while you'll still get an interesting movie like taxi driver or any number of altman films to you know for example Mm -hmm. if if people stop going then the genres that are popularized change and the way their approach change and i I think yeah it probably would have happened anyway but we have you know it makes it easier to pinpoint on star wars and jaws Mm -hmm. and heaven's gate no i i don't believe it's because directors um uh, lost control i think it's because the wrong directors 
gained control and became producers and then became moguls and then stopped using little short ugly Jews as their surrogates. Well, Sidney Sidney Pollack, who was basically a very good producer, he he directed a bunch of Jews such as in Tootsie to success in some sense. So we have to give somebody credit for starting out as a half-baked producer and moving on and still producing but putting out occasionally. It's true, but see, that's the thing. Sidney Pollack did what I like to call the the John Sayles light, which is do some good work, make some money with shit, then take that money you made from the shit and bankroll the good work. Speaking of John Sayles, next week we are showing City of Hope. Yeah. Which is a fantastic mm-hmm. movie. Yes, it is. Uh, it, it, the first time seen in widescreen, unless you saw it in the theater in 1991. I've tracked down a widescreen print. Everyone who, who likes sort of sprawling even Altman-esque kinds of films about corruption. It's a, it's a great movie, and we're showing next Thursday. Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to uh, start to combine the two or say who influenced whom, um, but we see the big ensemble sprawling cast, albeit on a shoestring, in sales like Lone Star, which I think is great. When it comes right down to it, it's a soap opera, but it doesn't matter, isn't life? It's a history lesson. That's also usually what yeah. he's trying to do. He's right, a, right. He's a little heavy-handed, but that's all right. Well, sales does soap operas with racial or sexual overtones. It's true. Mm-hmm. It's true. Well, I, you know, I gave you a, a little quiz, and of course, it's, there's no right and wrong because it's my opinion. What, in Ed Feldman's opinion, is Diane Keaton's worst performance or as i often say when i watch this film and i do watch it often uh her portrayal of the dumbest the other sister is that what you're saying the dumbest woman in america this is hiding in plain sight adam it's a very 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 obvious choice in my opinion because the godfather that's it ding 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 oh michael really how dumb is this broad? I'd argue that she's dumber than the other sister, actually. Have you seen that? She doesn't know her husband's in the mafia. Of all the really dumb characters in the other sister, she's really the dumbest. And I think if you haven't seen that, it's one of the sort of uncomfortably bad, one of the most uncomfortable. Is that the one bad- where uh, Juliette Lewis is retarded? Uh, yeah, and dates Giovanni Ruisi, who does some sort because, of... Because, by the yeah. way, Juliette Lewis is retarded. See, that's the whole thing. Mm-hmm. She wasn't really acting there. Giovanni <laughs> Ruisi, though, was? Is that the theory? I know morning radio hosts repeat phrases for emphasis, but I have to repeat this phrase. She doesn't know her husband's in the mafia. I think she's deliberately doing it, though. She doesn't know her <laughs> Now she it's, gets it's the weakest character in the movie. I'm not going to argue that point, but I think that she's deliberately not knowing because she thinks it would be better not to know, not to acknowledge it. That's that's fine. You know that they did that they did that on the Sopranos too. So oh no no, Edie Falco knew her husband was in the mafia. No, he knew she she knew, but there were other characters who knew, and then they would pretend they didn't know. Well, as long that's as they different. didn't as long as they didn't discuss it, and it, it seemed to be the same thing. It's just that. You know, she wanted it reinforced that it wasn't going on so she could feel better about herself sort of in her separate mind. Oh, Michael. All right. I'm going to tell I'm just this once. Did you? No. Oh, Michael. You know, and I'm sure there was some sort of meeting before two 
that she said, can I be a little less of a moron in the second one? And how do they change it? They get her to tell a Catholic mafia Don that she had an abortion. That's, that's her being smarter. <laughs> so from being completely dim-witted, she becomes too forthcoming. She becomes too smart. And of course, he hits her and takes her kids away and stuff like that. Well, hey, hey. All right. I, that's, that's well, uh, let's talk about looking for Mr. Goodbar. Richard would, Brooks. Yes. Who was an avowed heterosexual very much a heterosexual, certainly in the display of breasts. I think he displays breasts in two of his films as much as any pre-end of code uh, mainstream Hollywood director has. I mean, Elizabeth Taylor in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, who pretty much wears a slip through two-thirds of the movie, and then The Professionals, where I think... Uh, more than any movie since The Outlaw and Jane Russell, Claudia Cardinelli's um, cleavage. The that, lead, her cleavage had an actually uncredited speaking part. <laughs> the, incredibly, there is a larger breasted woman in The Professionals than Claudia Cardinelli. Okay. Is Anne Margaret in it? No, no. She's about the same size, you know, full C, uh, except D when she went to um, a Carnal Knowledge. Jane Mansfield? I don't know. No, there's another Mexican bandit woman in The Professionals who I think Burt Can- Lancaster... Cantiflas? No. <laughs> Around the World in 80 Days. Yes, the balloon had a larger orb. No, I, I, I guess we could look it up. I got Richard Brooks over here somewhere. I don't know if this woman ever had a, uh, a big part. <laughs> a big part. After that... Maria Gomez, as this name will come as no surprise to anyone, Chiquita. Yes, that's right. Marie Gomez. Well, that was the left breast, Chiquita. <laughs> and We and can she, figure out what the right one was called. She had, what did the Legions of Decency say about Jane Russell and the outlaw? Her bosoms hang over the uh, production like a landscape. I forget what that was. What do they think of gentlemen prefer blondes then? Well, that was 10 years after. That was different. She was innocent. (laughs) Well, because it was, that's one of the most homoerotic 50s movies ever, pretty much. The gentlemen prefer prefer blondes because there's that scene where all the guys are ignoring Jane Russell in a bathing suit and they're dancing, they're sitting and swimming in the pool. Well, sure, sure. Um, and they're, and they're all wearing, wearing uh, skin-colored uh, boxers. Careful, stuff. honey, you'll hurt yourself. Yeah, sure, absolutely. And basically that song was about, it, it sidled up against hom- uh, homosexuality or homoerotic. It says, ain't there anyone here for love? It was saying that male athletes are asexual. That's one step from being heterosexual to being homosexual i mean it's saying that they're not exactly heterosexual it's saying that they're asexual yes a larger breasted woman than claudia cardinelli is in the professionals and we know from richard brooks later life that he hung out at the playboy mansion almost constantly so here we have a man who is well it informed his view of women certainly yeah he by the way born in philadelphia jew and by the time he made Mr. Goodbar, I think he was almost 70. 
Yeah, something. Well, uh, in maybe his in, his, in his late 60s. Late 60s. Because he made movies for another eight years before he kind of, not got blacklisted, but. Well, before he, he had the three strikes you're out, you know, Hollywood's got the three strikes you're out. He made three three bombs in a row, and then you, you he made stopped wrong getting... Is, wrong is right, the, uh, the what was the, the, yeah, famous, r- the famous note Fever about... pitch, wrong is right. Oh, looking for good bar was three from the end. And that made money, so I don't know. Yeah. We're here with Adam Lippy of Medium Rare Cinema tonight showing Mr. Goodbar, which is just one of the most sexually backward, evil movies. I mean, rarely does a serious Hollywood film, and I, I, I say serious in the sense that it is certainly not a comedy. It had a big budget. It was ripped from today's headline. It was taken from a bestseller, and it's got the rare twin punch of being anti-feminist, anti-sexual freedom, and anti-gay. Not homophobic, but just homo-hatred. Horrible. Just horrible. The fact Wait a minute. When did Cruising come out? Three years later. Three years later. The fact that the gay community demonstrated against Cruising, but I can't recall any objection by either feminists uh, or the the gay community about Mr. Goodbar is just astonishing to me. Although maybe that was the time it wasn't ready, that kind of um, right to protest against the film or caring about it hadn't you know come to fruition wasn't ripe enough i would think it would have been ripe enough by 1977 well even in the movie itself there's a scene where gays are not allowed to parade essentially and then there's a fight that occurs which is what sets off tom berenger's character yeah but then he murders okay uh, just so you know here's a woman who is this called a spoiler She's, yeah, mur- very she's much. murdered because she's exercising her right to have sex. And her medieval Catholic family is saying, if you keep going looking for sex, i.e. exercising the same rights as we allow men to do in our culture, you will come to a bad end. And what do you know? She comes to a bad end. And guess who makes her come to a bad end? A gay man who feels... Uh, He is inadequate when he can't perform with a straight woman, so he kills her instead. I can't think of the double hatred whammy more obvious in any mainstream Hollywood film than Mr. Goodbar. Just execrable. And I need to tell you, I need to tell our listeners this, as I told you off the air, Adam. And again, we're of different generations. I'm much, much older than, well, almost everybody. And, and, And sometimes I think... People look at these movies and say, well, it's dated. That is to say, now we realize it's retardaire, it's backwards. I must say, me and my friends looking at that movie, brand new at that time, were absolutely clear in how hate-filled and backwards and reactionary and awful that movie was. At the time, I can't always say that, about films a lot of films certainly earlier than 77 i can remember the sea change women in love for example the ken russell movie what 68 69 there's a scene and this is this is phrases pulled right out of the dh lawrence book where the two couples are having a picnic and uh, i remember seeing it first run in 69 
uh, in an art house in Philadelphia. And Alan Bates is eating a fig and he splits the fig and he reveals all its inner layers. And he says, yes, the fig so ripe and juicy, I can't remember the exact lines. And then it exposes itself to the air and then it eventually dries out. That's how women die. And that's and then George O'Keefe shows up and she does a little dance and shows one of her paintings. (laughs) And when I saw that in 69 at a first run art house, I remember sighs, audible sighs from the very uh, respectful art house, uh, college educated, uh, you know, liberal arts majors. Oh, not a scant three years later at a revival house, that same scene when he said, and that's how women die. Hoots, hollers, and somebody yelling, shut the fuck up, you sexist bastard. <laughs> Remember it well, TLA, South Street. And you know, they were right. <laughs> So uh, there are sea changes, but I must tell you, at the time in 1977, we looked, my people looked at Mr. Goodbar with a unanimity of hatred. Well, really you know, you, you mentioned Women in Love, which is a Ken Russell movie. I, I wouldn't suggest that Crimes of Passion is any more progressive about gays or women. Or, no. Uh, and that's made in 84, and that's a not quite a Hollywood movie, but it was distributed, you know, widely, even if it had to be cut down for an R rating. But th- we have Ken Russell, who is even-handed in his, gee, Ed Feldman, English major, doesn't know the opposite of misogyny. What's the opposite of misogyny? When uh, Amanda Donahoe uh, a bite, uh, eats the penis off the Boy Scout in Lair of the White Worm. I mean, at least Ken Russell has women eating men, too. I mean, that's all right. That's okay. Richard Brooks and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof has Elizabeth Taylor half naked through half of the movie. He has Brick, Paul Newman, naked through half of the movie. That's okay. Something for everyone. I look at Elizabeth Taylor. Others may look at Paul Newman. Good. That's different than looking for Mr. Goodbar. It really is. It really is. Well, Richard Gere looks pretty bad throughout the movie, doing the weirdest, what looks like either Brando or De Niro impression. His scene with, where he seems to be threatening Diane Keaton with a knife and then opens the knife, and then it looks like a lightsaber slash dildo, and he runs around and dances naked with this dancing, I don't even know what it is, glow-in-the-dark knife that looks like a, a dildo. And she's terrified, and he's all into it, and he dances, and then he starts doing push-ups, and then you can see he's, it looks like he's almost wearing a garter belt, mm-hmm. and then he's got a jock strap on. And then he kills her. No, no, no. That's t- oh, that's later. That's much later. Richard Gere threatens to kill her, but it's not her. It's not him oh. who does it. But, oh, but it's right, one of those right, things where you know boy. nobody yeah. looks good in looking for Mr. Goodbar, no matter. It's, it's hard to know whether anybody was supposed to look good. Anyone yeah. was supposed, if it was supposed to be one-sided or not, because I, I don't think it, you know, the, the Catholic side is very cliched and heavy handed in it, but I don't I don't think that it was supposed to be a positive showing of Catholicism because they don't come off very well either. No, um, I, I think Mr. Goodbar is just another version of Saturday Night Fever, except it's about fucking instead of dancing. Well, Saturday Night Fever <laughs> was based on an article that was about that, too. But yeah. they, they changed it from gay to straight. Because Right. Let's talk about changing scripts. Early on in his career, Richard Brooks, 
uh, wrote a screenplay for Crossfire, a fine film with Robert Ryan giving... And, and Tucker Carlson, I think, was in it too. <laughs> uh, um, uh, a great, really Robert Ryan-y performance. Oh, God. Robert Ryan, who probably in his reviews have, has evoked more times the adjective flinty <laughs> in, in, in descriptions of his performances plays a guy who kills a guy because he's Jewish. I think he kills Sam Levine. And let me tell you, I understand Sam Levine can be really, really grating. <laughs> I mean, how many times did Nick Charles want to say, you know what? Just, just, just get out of my way, Lieutenant Abrams. Let me solve the case. For anyone under the age of 60, he's not talking ab about Sam Levine, the actor from Freaks and Geeks. Okay. I see I'm almost 60, so I don't know who you're talking about. There well, he was in Inglorious Bastards also, but... Missed it. Gotta say it. Wanna say it. I hear it's awful. No, or it's not great. It, it, the first 15 minutes are great, and then okay. some of it works and some of it doesn't. You know, I would just uh, say that if you're only going to make eight movies in your life, they should be all really good. Well, he's made. I this, mean, Kubrick managed. He, he, he's made the same movie a lot over and over. The theory had always been that all he right. ran out of ideas after Pulp Fiction because he and Roger Aver got into an argument. And it's very difficult to argue differently, honestly, because mm. following Pulp Fiction, you have an, a book adaptation, Jackie Brown. And then a long delay, and then Kill Bill one and two, which are just uh, sort of combining genres and throwing cliches at each other. And like the first one, second one can't sit through. Well, one's a western, and one is a look at me. I went to video stores and rented movies. Mm -hmm. That's the first one. Again, I think he needs to take a page out of Kubrick. If you're only going to make a dozen movies, they sh you should try and make them all to be really good. <laughs> or yeah, really yeah. remarkable and memorable in, in, i'll give you because his the, his version of lolita is is pretty awful I've always oh heard. it's wonderful it has nothing to do with the book it doesn't matter he can't do the book he can't do the book for two reasons he can't have somebody having sex with a 12 year old in 1962 and he can't ha use the metaphors that Nabokov used instead of describing someone having sex with a 12 year old. I'd say despite <laughs> the, you know, sometimes negative press surrounding that, that Adrian Lyons version of elite is actually pretty good. I, you know, I well, frankly, I never thought a 12 year old having sex would be, could possibly be that boring. I guess having it with Jeremy Irons would be a good first step towards that. I think they made her fourteen in the in the. Uh, all right, okay, fourteen too. Well, I, it was it was just like they did that to uh, the lovely bones. You would at least at least saying having a sex with a and she's supposed to be prepubescent in the book, uh, having sex with that would at least require me to say, oh my god! But I never said that once during that long and boring second one. Although Frank Langella's penis was worth, well, watching it on HBO. Well, I was going to say, because it never really got a theatrical release. Yeah, right. I never, oh, I wouldn't pay for that shit. Oh, are you kidding me? I'm kidding. No, I think Lolita was wonderful. It was a fabulous, fabulous comedy with unbelievable performances. And you, Adam, as a normal, regular guy sitting and talking to another normal, regular guy. 
which is one of my favorite scenes in all of films when Peter Sellers meets uh, Mason out on the veranda and talks to him as one normal regular guy to another. That whole movie is a metaphor. What Kubrick saw in the book is that there is this poetry that never mentions that this 12-year-old is giving oral sex to this 40-whatever-year-old. And so I am talking about fires in lakes and something like that. And Kubrick realized, I cannot describe the act either. And, but I cannot use the poetic metaphors here. So I must use different metaphors. And his metaphors are so insane, are so comically driven by, as far as I know, the only time that Kubrick ever let anyone improvise within 10 miles of his set, he allowed another, half Jewish, a genius... Uh, to to do it. And I always lament the fact that Kubrick stopped making movies with Peter Sellers, just as I lament whatever happened between Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder. And will we ever know, Adam? Well, one could easily argue that Mel Brooks never made another interesting movie after 1974. So mm-hmm. I don't... What happened? Did they have a fight? Because nobody ever talks about neither of them. And they, they've both been interviewed, uh, you know, um, What's his name? Mr. Show Business, the new Jack Cassidy. What's his name? Alec Baldwin. You know, I'm a full of shit actor, but I know it and you know it. And I'm, you know, I'm just Shatner next generation. Uh, He he did a long interview. A little better of an actor than Shatner. You think? Yeah. Okay. Shatner could not have pulled off the I am God speech in Malice. Okay. They still, they both got really fat really quick, though. (laughs) You notice that? It's like, I can't get a lead role. I'm eating. I'm eating. <laughs> um, he had a long interview on Turner classic with Gene Wilder and uh, Brooks. Well, does Brooks ever give a, a, a serious interview? No, no. And you know what? I don't care, but he was just on with Dick Cavett on Turner too. That thing is never discussed after young Frankenstein, the next movie, high anxiety, so obviously written with Gene Wilder in I think the mind. next movie is actually a silent movie. Is it? I think that's 76. We've okay. got a computer there. but All right. Well, all right. High Anxiety, a film role made for Gene Wilder, who was Mr. Anxiety. And, of course, Mel Brooks takes it, and it fails because of that. Well, it also fails because the writing is so on the nose throughout the movie that it, you know none of the jokes go anywhere. If Gene Wilder, you know, there are certain movies that you can't, that I can't stop watching while doing my mashup inside. And um, I always, when I watch Breakfast at Tiffany's, I think of Marilyn, who is what, who Capote wanted in that role. And when I watch High Anxiety, I said, this role is written for Gene Wilder, and I think Gene Wilder would have saved that movie. It's not an awful movie compared to some of the real shit that Mel Brooks did after that, whether he was pandering like Men in Tights or what, Life Stinks, which is just what? Okay, so you wanted to feel up Leslie Ann Warren. Don't, let, don't make me help you. And, but I think uh, the last gasp of 
you know, Mel Brooks's seventies brilliance would have been Gene Wilder. And, but uh, so you as an archivist, as the guy who knows, no, they, neither no, of them ever really. say what happened. They, I've never heard anybody talk about it. Yeah. Cause then, you know, what happened to Gene Wilder? He started to try and be Mel Brooks and you know what happened there. It was a bigger failure than Mel Brooks trying to be Mel Brooks. Or Marty Feldman trying to be Mel Brooks, one or the other, which oh. Marty Feldman did try to do. Oh, right. The pirate movie. And the um, last remake of Bo Jester. Right, right. How about that? Adam, here's another quiz. Who are these people and why have their filmic achievements been disappointments? Information. Uh, operator, give me the number, please, of uh, George Kaplan, K-A-P-L-A-N, at 4411 Huguenot Walloon Drive. <laughs> That is George Kaplan. Yes, that's right. That is Kaplan. Mm -hmm, Yes. That is K as in knife. (laughs) A as in artibark. P as in pneumonia. L as in luscious. A as in artibark again. N as in Newell Post. Kaplan? Uh, I, I think so, yes. I'd like to say we were all much smarter then. That's why we appreciated Mike Nichols and Elaine May. Um, but uh, the, such is not the case. Just some of us. Because that wasn't well ahead. And that indeed was Mike Nichols and Elaine May. And could Elaine May alter her voice into more characters from execrable to exquisite than anyone else perhaps speaking of elaine may her daughter is in a movie that i saw five years ago at a test screening and it's finally coming out next week and i have no idea if it's going to get a release in philadelphia or whether there's still the rumored court battle but it's called margaret and it stars anna paquin and matthew broderick and matt damon and mark ruffalo and allison janney and on and on and on and on and on and on uh, and it was shot in 2005 by Kenneth Lonergan, and they've been in court since 2006. Uh, How come? And, well, because Lonergan wouldn't come in with a final cut. There's producer interference. The movie's been in limbo so long that the two major producing backers, at least in terms of power, are dead. One wow. being Sidney Pollack, the other being Anthony Minghella. And they've been dead a while. That's how long yeah. this has been sitting around. They've been dead long enough that when I saw this at a test screening in 2006, Sidney Pollack was sitting behind me, and I think he lived another two years. And, this, and then it, it's still not coming out until next week, September 30th, at least in New York and L.A. It's not clear, based on the press releases I'm getting, if it's coming out in Philadelphia. They may just be trying to bury it and to get it off the books. I know this is an unfair question because probably no one knows the answer, so I'll ask it. Uh, Adam, how many how many movies are in limbo at any given time? And we're not talking about little movies that can't get any distribution because it was name, made by nobodies or uh, but I mean, movies that because of their connections to Hollywood studios or distribution were intended to be released yet for some legal or perhaps artistic dispute. They just float around like the Flying Dutchman. Well, this happens a lot, just not really on this scale with this many name actors behind it. And with a director who'd made a a nominated film, You Can Count On Me, and had worked in Hollywood as a screenwriter and polisher and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. There are some films that you'd think, well, why isn't that out? You know, and and usually it's because they're sort of mid-budget movies that you'd have to spend more than the budget 
to distribute and it's just not worth, not worth buying. There's Mr. Nobody. There's I Come With The Rain. There's a number of mainstream-ish films with, you know, 40 or $50 million budgets that are not going to come out in the U.S. because in order for anybody to make money off of it, you know, you're going to have to spend $50 million. And why would you do that for a movie that's clearly not going to make $50 million? So there's a lot of sort of limbo movies, but those are often international co-productions that are seeking a Hollywood distributor that may have been big budget at, at one time. In terms of this scale, there was an Alec Baldwin mm-hmm. movie that was like this for a long time that was eventually finished by the accountants called the title now is shortcut to happiness but it was a remake of the devil and daniel webster with uh, anthony hopkins period piece no okay a- anthony hopkins and jennifer love hewitt that alec baldwin directed and he's also in and he ended up taking his name off the movie because the because jennifer love hewitt was in it well there's that but it also sat on the shelf for six years and there was insurance problems and eventually it came out and it's a total mess but it, it's rare that you get something that is in court over not because they couldn't finish the movie because of finances, but because the director would not hand in a final cut and the studio would not fire him because they thought it would give them, you know, a bad name amongst directors. Proof uh, uh, once again that Anthony Hopkins says uh, when considering a film role, uh, where's the check? <laughs> uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt, don't so, know her. Where's the check? Never saw her. Don't know who she is. Where's well, he the doesn't check? say that at dinner. Oh, really? Cheap? No, I'm joking with you. <laughs> From the great, uh, distinguished Michael Caine school of careful, discernible script uh, selection, which is, which one's on top? <laughs> Where's the check? Uh, Michael Caine, didn't he write a book about, you know, acting or something? And it's the, uh, Well, his, the, him and Hackman like were all the same. Rosie never... O'Donnell on fine cuisine. <laughs> right. They were basically saying that they, they were never sure if they'd get another role, so they just took right. everything. And that's, well, because Michael Caine's early upbringing. He didn't know where his next meal was coming right. from. Hence the scene in PCU where the guy is doing a, his thesis on um, the fact that at any moment in time, there's a, either a Gene Hackman or a Michael Caine movie on cable uh, 24 hours a day. And then when someone mentions a bridge too far to him, he goes insane and his head explodes because they're both in that. Not anymore. As Anthony Hopkins once said, Gene Hackman quit. He just does Lowe's commercials now. Yeah, that's true. That's right. Good for him. You know what? He realizes it's over. I'm doing. I'm doing. Okay, so. His last uh, film was Welcome to Mooseport. Yes, with Ray Romano. Yeah. Well, who is the uh, kind of the Jennifer Love Hewitt in Gene Hackman's life. <laughs> Except maybe he's a bigger boob. Okay. Oh, and they were free. And so, Adam, what are we showing tonight? And by we, I mean you. We're at showing medium rare cinema. We're showing "Looking for Mr. Goodbar" by Richard Brooks, which, according to Ed and somewhat myself, is a, is a little terrible, a little campy, but very, very entertaining. It's hateful. It, it's a hateful film. I want all you uh, gay people and feminists to go there and see what life was like. And thank your lucky stars you live in America of 2000 and whatever it is. I keep forgetting. You know, this is, this is like, it's pretty much gone with the wind, but for you. <laughs> no, except there are good parts to gone with the wind. And there's no black maid in Looking for Mr. Goodbar. Right. But there may well be. There are, there are uh, hateful. There's only one black character in Looking for Mr. Goodbar, and it's played by LeVar Burton. 
Is he gay? I forget. No, he's it's not. He so plays long. he plays the brother of one of the deaf children that Diane Keaton teaches in the movie. Oh, okay. Oh, right. She teaches deaf children, which makes her death even more, I don't know, <laughs> poignant. Can a death be made more poignant? By the way, earlier in the show, I mentioned uh, Sidney Pollack as someone who would make a kind of crowd-pleasing movie and then a good small movie. Turns out I was wrong. I'm, I'm looking at his... Yeah, I don't think he ever made a good small movie. No, he didn't. Is. He made like three really good movies. Three Days of the Condor is a great movie. I, I, it, it's, I think it's a wonderful movie. It blends uh, action and, and politics with an absolutely unneeded Faye Dunaway subplot because there has to be sex in it at some point, I guess... Like the parallax view, it's one from the 70s that I think is so misguided. Yeah. Well, see, the parallax view, people were high while they made the parallax view. You can absolutely, I think I can always tell when the... Well, it's like college freshman philosophy student high, sort of like, man, they're out there. But Condor is tight. Condor is driven. Condor has a plot that goes straight through. And the good thing about day, Three Days of the Condor is that it's, well, frankly, it takes my view of geopolitics, which is it's all about money. It has nothing to do with true believing. Uh, the good can become the bad, and the bad can become the good when the source of the checks change. And the point also made in the Star Chamber, which is like the parallax view in the 80s with an 80s point of view. Yeah, but the parallax view in Star Chamber is still this kind of vast uh, Xenu based conspiracy thing that you don't know where it comes from. The uh, Three Days of the Condor is very plain. The United States government plays both sides of the street. They always have, and it's about their self-interest and what greases the tracks is money. Uh, I like Tootsie, and I like, uh, and that's it. <laughs> oh, sorry, Sydney. Although you did outact Tom Cruise. In Eyes Wide Shut. You yeah, bet. He's the, he's the best thing in that. You bet, without question. I like, uh, I like two things about that party scene. Sydney Pollack. And the fact that I think for the first time in his entire film career, and I think only Stanley Kubrick could have gotten away with this, we see at a an absolutely glitzy Christmas party where everybody is dressed to the nines, full body shots from head to toe, with Tom Cruise and two very attractive girls that he meets. And you can see that at the glitziest party that any of us have would ever have been invited to, both of those girls are wearing flats. They're wearing flats, Adam, because Tom Cruise is standing next to them. Now you tell me at Sidney Pollock's $30 million Upper East Side Mansion at a Christmas party. What woman is wearing sh a shimmery dress? Well, would you prefer Norma and and flats? Tell me why why they're wearing flats, Adam. The same reason that 
it's distracting in Manhattan with Meryl Hemingway's the love interest, and mm-hmm. she towers over Woody Allen. And the scenes are are distracting because she is at least half a foot taller than him. Well, she's also half his age. I mean, isn't that the point? Yes. It doesn't you, matter. When she's 16 and he's 50, what does it matter how much taller she is than Well, him? it's distracting in the sense that, you know, the, the, the roles are a little reversed of like who's the adult and who's the child. But maybe that's sort of the point. I'm it, surprised at you, Adam. What? I'm surprised at you. I'm not defending Tom Humphrey Cruise. Bogart. Humphrey Bogart never hid the fact that he was... Well, all Hollywood actors, the key to being in a movie or on TV is having a big head and being short because it makes for better close-ups. But Humphrey Bogart didn't stand on boxes. You know why? Because he all action was heroes except Humphrey Bogart. All action heroes now are short except for Steven Seagal. Well, he's not an action hero. He's just actor. fat. Right, but he, when he, in his heyday, he was, you know, he's still yeah. six foot five or something like that. And Clint Eastwood is still an action hero. Well, in action, maybe at this point. Oh. You know, Van Damme's five foot one, you know, mm-hmm. Desperado is, is it, you know, I know it's 15 years old, but anything, it's a treatise on, on uh, how to make short actors look like big giants because Antonio Banderas is about five foot five and Selma Hayek's about four foot 11. And oh, they, Selma Hayek. And they make everybody look six foot 10 using low angle shots. It doesn't matter what height you are. It's how tall you can act. Alan Ladd had to put on a box because he couldn't, act tall or tough or strong but did anybody ever try to hide how short bruce lee was because everybody knew that bruce lee could beat the shit out of everybody in the room and the fact that he was short was okay did they ever try and hide the fact how short jimmy cagney was but, you're, but no the, pro- the problem with bruce lee bruce lee wasn't really much of an actor and to suggest okay. that there was any bad any example competence behind the camera i mean his most famous film is tone deaf because the director was actually deaf right okay bad example well no a different kind of example jimmy cagney ever hide how short he was not that I remember, no. Edward G. Robinson ever uh, try and hide how short he was? Kurt Russell never does. George Raft ever try and? Because these were giants in tough guys, because in reality, Jimmy Cagney could beat the shit out of people. He had been a boxer. In reality, George Raft could beat the shit out of people. Couldn't read or write. Did you know that, by the way? But he could beat the shit out of well, people. We, Kurt Russell can beat the shit out of people, as we're suggesting? I don't know. <laughs> He is willing to look short. So I always, you know, I've always been a Kurt Russell fan for that reason. Yeah. So the thing is, only bad actors need to pretend to be tall. But again, the Sidney Pollack uh, party, you actually see. Did you notice this, by the way? Not to, you know, get one up over on you, but did you notice that's the only time you ever see a full body shot of a Tom Cruise with some girls. That movie is so overlit. I saw it in yeah. the theater. It's very difficult and so grainy. That They're it was in actually flats. Very difficult to see. You might have seen an unmatted version. I didn't see their shoes because I'm sure the shoes weren't supposed to be visible in some sense. No, the fucking was supposed to be invisible. And, and if anything could get me to hate Tom Cruise more than I already did, it's the fact that while Stanley Kubrick was not even cold in his grave, Tom Cruise was the one I am told who gave permission. It wasn't it wasn't permission, it was contractual. Contractual yeah. to mat out the sex scenes. Well no, to get an R rating. 
that was contractual. That was in Kubrick's contract that the movie had to be under a certain length and it had to be, you know, an R or less. Well, do you think Kubrick, with his uh, reputation, could not have fought that? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, there's MPA has, if always, anybody, been, has always been prudes about sex, but not violence. If so. anybody could have, I mean... He didn't win on Clockwork Orange, did he? He had to, you know... Different time. Different time. Different time. And we all know that Midnight Cowboy would be an R now. It would be a PG-13 now. Yeah, right. There you go. But Clockwork Orange would still be a, an R or an NC-17 now. I mean, it's pretty hardcore. If you, you know, if you have a memory of it, it's... It would be R. It would be R, but that's be, okay. It might be NC-17 because the rapes are pretty strong, actually. Anybody who removes his uh, film from uh, distribution for, what, two generations, I think is, is the kind of guy who could have fought the MPAA. We will never know the answer well, to Well, he this. removed it from England. I know, not, I know. Not from the world. Right, I know. That's but, not a, that's not an enormous market. Yeah, but to Kubrick, uh, England was his world. We all know. Yes, <laughs> but but my point is that that you know it's not like he he did it. Uh, he didn't pull a Michael Cimino and pull something after a week, and you never saw it again. I don't think you should use those two names in the same sentence. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> oh, for discussing director control. Okay, you're right. Okay, at, at that point in time. Uh, and by the way, I know that's. Uh, 25 years too late, but I didn't have a radio show back then. I told you, I told you, I told you Deer Hunter was a shitty, shitty movie, and this man would prove himself to be awful. And I was right, wasn't I? I was right. Thank you. Well, you're more than 25 years too late. All right, 30. 30. That's about fair. See, I hated the Deer Hunter. Absolutely. I thought the Deer Hunter was not only racist, against of course the vietnamese it was the it also hated people who like to be awake because of that first hour at the wedding that's a a bit more than tedious just the most pandering to the working class oh yes i can play chopin or whatever the hell he played at the piano in that scene the working class chimino knew working class he made he made big budget commercials yeah just uh, just a pandering, awful, uh, hulking, horrible movie. And oh god! All right, fine. Well, and, uh, speaking of director control, and and, and uh, although I I can imagine a lot of people saying about uh, what's his name Walken, gee, that guy's really playing a crazy guy. Good, uh, we didn't know yet, did we? Anybody who hasn't seen it, they should go see Drive, which opened last weekend, which to me was the best movie of the year uh, with um, Brian Gosling and Albert Brooks and. Uh, Brian Cranston and a whole bunch of other good supporting actors, uh, Ron Perlman looking like the Joker. It's a fusion of everything that Michael Mann and Walter Hill did really well in the 80s, and yet it makes none of those mistakes. There is character development. There is humor. The chases are immaculately edited. The, there's suspense. There's, the music is fantastic. It, it, it's really just the best movie of the year by... Quite a wide margin. So and it's far. called Drive. And it opened last week. And yes. I'm completely ignorant to it. Well, it opened, you know, it was battling against Lion King 3D, and it's a very, very, very violent movie. So, uh, and the violence is kind of shocking because it's often out of nowhere. Um, it's from the director of Bronson and Valhalla Rising and Pusher, for anyone who knows any of those films. Mm-hmm. But it is, it is really uh, an Is it in movie. like real theaters? Yeah, 2,000 theaters. Uh, the trailers are misleading because they're awful. 
if you want to get a sense of the soundtrack, you go find Media Mirror Cinema on Google Maps, and you will find and click on it. You will see a slideshow I put together of all the movies we we've shown using one of the tracks from Drive uh, that I put together about a month ago when, when I originally saw it. And to give you an idea, there were critics going back a second time because they screened it a bunch of times. We'd never do that. Really? Never. Did okay for an R-rated film over the weekend, but still, you know, I, I want this movie to have legs. You know, it's not like an award-winning sort of thing. It's mm-hmm. just completely perfect and frill-free entertainment. And I don't mean frill-free in a panic room way mm-hmm. where there's just nothing going on, mm-hmm. but I mean in a, like, it's stylish, it's funny, it's well-acted, the music is beautiful, it's, it's an ode to the 80s without being condescending or ironic. In, in order to capture the tones that, that, that the director manages, I have no idea how he, how he managed it. The reason he made the movie is that he, he is originally hired to adapt a Paul Schrader script called Dying of the Light, in which he would have been able to kill Harrison Ford. But then Harrison Ford objected. Good idea. Yeah. And, well, he said during the Q&A after the screening that he had wanted to kill Harrison Ford so there wouldn't be an Indiana Jones 5. <laughs> and unfortunately... Wait a minute. There was a 4? Yeah, Exactly. Harrison Ford balked eventually, and so he, event, you know, the director after six months of pre-production and all this other stuff ended up making Drive, and turned what was a very generic Hollywood Fast and the Furious type script into something considerably more esoteric but accessible. It's probably uh, with that little uh, description of yours, finally time to talk about what people who tune into a morning program with a guest such as you. Have been waiting to hear. Well, I'm six feet tall. What are you? No, okay, you are quite tall. Now, what are you recommending, Adam, of new movies aside from uh, Driven or Drive? Driven is a Ready yeah, Harlan movie. You right. want to skip that one? Yeah. Okay. Here, here's what I'll be honest about this: is that I went to a number of movies over the summer, and I didn't write about any of them because I just could not be bothered because they weren't good enough. Well, I was indifferent to them. The only mm-hmm. movie that that. I should have written about it and didn't was the documentary about Tribe Called Quest. That was really fantastic, called Beats Rhymes Life, which was the one directed by Michael Rapport. I remember I mentioned that one. Ah, yes. Excellent movie. He's dumb like a horse or dog. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, the, the Errol Morris documentary tabloid wasn't bad uh, for him. I mean, great for documentary, but you know, mm-hmm. not at his normal standard, but still a very entertaining movie. And then it's hard to think of almost anything. I saw a summer's worth of what I call splotchy vision movies, uh, in which the new way that they, they shoot these mid-budget comedies like Bad Teacher and Horrible Bosses and The Change-Up and Friends with Benefits and Cedar Rapids and all this other stuff mm-hmm. is to, sh- to show everything in the color range is purple and gold. And everyone looks splotchy on screen. And it's horrible looking. And they do it because it compresses better at home on DVD and Blu-ray. But it looks terrible in a theater. And I know they're using what's called a color wheel to adjust them because they think that's what people want to see in their comedies. But it's so ungainly and so difficult to look at. And it's going to get worse the easier it becomes to shoot on HD. And now it's already very easy to do that and obviously edit in, you know, on the computer. Yeah. It's just going to get worse the more, you know, something like Horrible Bosses, which is a you know, pretty middling movie where it's just a bunch of improvised lines where there's no, they don't even bother to make the villains particularly evil or interesting. And the main characters aren't interesting, but it has moments that are funny, but it's still so ugly to look at that. It's difficult to get through. And it's still running off the same concept that most comedy in Hollywood right now is inspired mostly by two sources. And it's the state and upright citizens brigade, uh, which were sketch shows. So what you get is, Interesting actors, comedic actors, show up and basically perform in sketches 
but that's not a movie. And so all the sketches are sort of cut together haphazardly. And they often, like, there's no, the pacing is awful. The, there's no follow through. The Fairley Brothers basically started this movement, and mm-hmm. Hall Pass is one wonderful example it's of it. It's like a, a bunch of set pieces, except without the explosions. It's, yeah, it's a bunch of set pieces. The pacing is, is terrible. There's no consistency in the way anyone behaves. And I know it's just, they're stupid comedies, but they're also not funny because everything changes based on the scene. It's just like an improv game to them. Here's a rhetorical question. It's rhetorical because uh, I already know the answer. Uh, <laughs> Adam, it seems to me that a good way to judge a movie, especially a comedy, is if you watch the trailer and you laugh... There is a chance that you will laugh again when you see the entire movie. Because in my opinion, perhaps, if they want you to go and see the movie and it's a comedy, they want to put a really good joke in the trailer so you will laugh and then you will go see the comedy. Uh, Therefore, the converse is also true. I, I if would you argue you watch the that. trailer and you do not laugh, you will probably not laugh at the, the trailer movie. for Rushmore. Not funny. And that's a great movie. The trailer for Bottle Rocket, not funny. Great movie. Rushmore was a really great movie. It was the beginning of Bill Murray's mumblecore career. Exactly. The, the trailer for Cabin Boy, much funnier than the movie. In fact, it creates jokes that are not in the movie, simply by way of editing. You know, I not, really... Not one funny thing in Cabin Boy, but there's two funny things in the trailer. I, I, lo- I liked Cabin Boy, but I only really laughed out loud at one line, and it wasn't the line. It was the line where the grizzled old guy who's now dead said after they hauled him in from the boat that trailed behind uh, the big boat for like six days, well, we gave you a carton of chocolate milk. I laughed at that. I kind of laughed at the Letterman uh, cameo where he talked about the monkey because I knew he was going to mention a monkey. By the way, speaking of Bill Murray, never has a more obvious acting decision, I think a simple acting decision, paid off better for a while then you know i usually am very demonstrative and talk really loud in my movies and they're all comedies and i get no respect i want that respect i'm now going to talk really softly and display much less well, isn't he just doing what he did in where the buffalo roam but enunciating no, where the Buffalo Rome, he was being Bill Murray, except with a Hunter Thompson kind of an accent. He was being loud and obnoxious. And he's, it, not, he's not actually that loud and obnoxious. It's mostly Peter Boyle doing it throughout the movie. And, he, and, and while Bill yeah, Murray right. he's doing loud and obnoxious, but he's not being loud. Yeah, right. right. He's doing, but he's doing Hunter Thompson. Right. But what I'm getting at is he's doing what he did in that, but he, you can understand what he's saying most yeah. of the time. I like that movie, as a matter of fact. I like where the Buffalo... There's got to be one. <laughs> so let's go backwards. I played Nichols and May before, and um, they never fulfilled the promise for me because this stuff was so sophisticated, so inside, so... How do I put a simple word on it? Uh, Jewish. Certainly, he starts out with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, the most self-consciously intellectual play ever filmed. We won't even get into that. Suffice it to say, I think it's simultaneously a lot funnier and a lot less funny than it intended to be. I know it's complicated. I don't want to talk about it. It's funny in different places and not funny. Yeah. She stinks. He's good. What can I tell you? And uh, the other two, they're just hanging around. 
But then where does he go? Where does Mike Nichols go? He goes so mainstream. He goes so middle of the road. Why didn't he? Why didn't he? Why didn't he make important small art films? Well, that's what The Graduate was supposed to be. But Now, see, that was a dated film when I saw it, well, yeah, too. Yeah, it's very dated now. Yeah. No, it was dated then. Okay. Now... You know, I know people might think that I'm an egotist or that all morning uh, radio hosts are egotists, and uh, you may be right. But I'm telling you, I was 16, I was 15 years old when I saw The Graduate. And you know what I said when I saw The Graduate in 1968, is it? And of course, what was The Graduate? It was the most contemporary film, finally, a film about. Our, your generation, kids, your generation. You know what I thought watching the whole graduate? When are they going to mention the war? They never mentioned the war. The reason for 1968, the reason for my generation, the center of my generation's being. I think the graduate, graduate was 67, though. It was still. The war was going on. It was the war. Why aren't they mentioning the war? Well, the same reason that, that Altman had to make MASH about Korea. So He mentioned the war. It was a war. Everybody knew what war he was talking about. Right. Now, I know why they didn't mention the war. They mentioned the war for two reasons. One is they, didn't, they wanted a lot of people to come and see the movie, and they didn't think a movie about the war would get a lot of people to see the movie. And secondly, that the greatest uh, screenwriter of the 60s, Buck Henry, pulled the script directly out of the book and changed like six words. <laughs> I like Buck Henry. He was the greatest host that Saturday Night Live ever had that wasn't a performer. By the way, when was the last time Saturday Night Live had a comedy writer as a host? Yeah, right. How about that? Another reason. Tina Fey. She's a comedy writer? Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Again, you know... Little things throw me off. What do you think Tina Fey is? I mean, that's what she's a girl who wears glasses. So you think she's brainy, but she's not. And now she doesn't even wear glasses anymore. Uh, But she was a comedy writer long before that. Okay. All right. Fine. I guess that's comedy nowadays. Well, I mean, I, again, I, mean, I like the idea of Tina Fey much more than I like the idea much. Well, she's the straight man on that show. So that's, that's the key. She's, yeah. she's just supposed to be the goofy one who doesn't know that she's irrelevant. In a yeah. Sense. I, I mean, the show is about how irrelevant Saturday Night Live is, which is funny because they're both produced by Lauren Michaels, but that's 30 Rock is about how, how pointless Saturday Night Live is. They're producing the most irrelevant show on yeah. television. And again, Adam, I know I'm, I'm coming across. There's no one I have as a guest who reminds me of how fucking old I am more than you. Well, for those who are younger than Ed, which is everyone, yeah, uh, anyone, he mentioned Harvey earlier. For those of you younger viewers, uh, may be more familiar with uh, Donnie Darko, in which there's a six foot rabbit in it as well. So now you get a sense of what we were talking about. Okay. But um, I, I saw. Yeah, I know this. Oh, this is going to sound really sad. I watched five minutes of a Saturday Night Live, and they were doing a takeoff on an early '60s or late '50s game show. Well, they've been doing parodies of things that didn't exist for a long time. And I said, "That's not how it was." No, I know they weren't like that at all. If you really did a good parody of those things, 
Now, I know. While Ed is rambling Thanks. and no one is listening to okay. his rant. No, it's all right. Let's go back. <laughs> I want to say, because I promised I'd mention it, that uh, everyone should go see Phase 7 when it comes out on DVD, which is a terrific Mexican horror movie, very Carpenter-esque, and that you should skip Cold Fish. Okay. And by Carpenter-esque. Escape from New York. Oh, yeah, right. So dark. Dark, funny, end-of-world stuff. Okay disease virus kind of stuff but but uh low budget so they keep it within a building in an interesting way all right so what um drive is the only thing you're recommending now? well all right i know that everyone loved rise of the planet of the apes i was the one i didn't that... say it a lady a friend of mine my lady friend um uh, saw it and did not like it so i was much. the one in the theater laughing at it when i came out and they asked for a blurb quote i said it's the best ape in a sweater movie i've seen this week and I meant it. I was laughing at the whole movie. It made no sense, which is fine. They added a time thing where, like, you know, five years later, three years later, it screws up every plot point and is totally unnecessary. And most of it's just unintentionally funny. And I know it got good reviews and it did good box office, but, uh, you know, there was somebody laughing in the theater besides me and he was sitting in front of me. So, you know, there were 30 critics. That was James Franco like, because he's high all the time and laughs at everything. How high do you think he was uh, during the making of that film? I, that's that's what I want to know. Did he seem a little bit high or did he seem like really He seemed high? disinterested. Did he seem Academy Award broadcast high? He just didn't want to be there about halfway through. But, okay. But I could say the same thing about Rise of the Planet of the Apes. By the way, oh, here's an interesting question. Uh, do you read other reviewers? Before I write anything, no. Terrible idea. I have read a lot of the local critics, and some of them just seem to be going through the motions. And I find it frustrating that having conversations with some of them, they can think, but they choose not to, and they choose to dumb down what they're writing. And it's very frustrating that there's no point of view in the writing. It's just they want to get their opinion out as quickly as possible, mm -hmm. as opposed to, well, I'm trained more in like film theory and analysis, so my reviews are more about the ideas of the film, you know, maybe subtext. If there's no subtext, fine. Maybe there's some unintentional humor. Less about, oh, it was great, because that's totally subjective. And I can express what I thought about it from my perspective only. And I, I can't just say, well, it was good or it was bad, because that's a pointless review. You can get that from anyone. And a lot of people, partially because of space reasons, but partially because, you know, I don't know if there's an element of fear of putting yourself out there that makes them not really put in the effort to to really go into dissecting things even if they have the space even if they're if they have a column that can they, they can go in the 5 to 700 word arena you got that's plenty of space mm -hmm. to be able to do a real analysis and nobody really does it does the this have anything to do with deadlines i mean you if you have them they're self imposed these people have real deadlines no i have real deadlines cuz i write okay. i write essays for each film that we show mm -hmm. and i hand them out before the screening to give people an overview and i don't ruin the film by spoiling anything and i give a sense of the background and the history now i don't expect you know reviews of current films to give the background and the history but a sense of where you're coming from i always think of each review that you write as an audition for the reader you assume that the person who's reading it has never read you before and you'd like to read them again so you better impress them and i don't mean by using big words i mean by using your brain and trying to get across a, a distinct point of view and the problem a lot of the time is that most reviews are indistinguishable 
they can be summed up by a blurb. When I put my stuff on Rotten Tomatoes, I have a very difficult time finding a blurb. If you're not writing for a major paper and someone's doing that for you, you have to do it yourself. Mm -hmm. So when I choose a blurb, I have a very difficult time doing it because I've got to comb my review for something that would explain whether I liked something or not. And most of the time, I can't find three sentences in there that are that specific that can fit into the 255 character limit. So I end up just putting like what I think is probably the funniest joke in the review or something silly or something backhanded. But if you can sum up the thing in a paragraph, that's problematic. That means that you're just writing a summary and not really analysis. You just, you could have had a robot sit there. You could have had, they have people who, and I don't, this is you, their job. You never thought of take your hands off me, you damn dirty uh, filmmaker. <laughs> well they do that in Planet of the Apes actually it's a terrible idea and they do it anyway okay um, no well you see I'm 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 okay with that because you know the Marky Mark movie and all those James Franciscus kind of made for TV interim well, those uh, are all campy eight, eight those, movies all camp. um, uh, kind of make us forget that the first movie was funny and silly and fun too it's like it's like the Star Wars analogy. It's like so much else. We forget that the first installments of the of these genres were light and fun, and over the years, somehow that has been drained out of them and replaced by import and meaningfulness and reverence. And reverence. Yeah. yeah, it makes very little sense. I went at my review of Tron Legacy. I talked about that, where they treated the original Tron with reverence. And I wrote, don't you guys realize that Tron's a terrible movie? That doesn't mean it's not entertaining, because it is. Mm -hmm. But the more seriously you take it, the more you notice that it's pretty shoddily put together, the original I'm talking about. So mm -hmm. if the sequel takes it so seriously, that's insane, because it's already like patchwork stuff. So why, why would you take that seriously? You start off going another direction. Time never makes anything funnier. It no. always makes it more serious, because I have this feeling that Thousands of years ago, there are a bunch of guys wandering around the desert in the Middle East smoking whatever they fucking found on the ground and saying, hey, I got an idea. A word floating in the air, like a big word, man, in the beginning, right? There's this big fucking word floating in the air. And they wrote that down, and you know what that came to be. You know, In the beginning, there was the word, and they really just kind of dreamt it up after smoking some shit. It was originally supposed to be funny, and later it got all serious. Oh, well. Does this mean that in the inevitable repetition of the art of changing art so that you can't be sued and simultaneously get a new audience, you can either make something serious into something funny, and that's called a spoof, or something lighthearted and fun into something serious, and that's called reverence? I mean, isn't that just the basic building blocks of art that isn't original? Well, they haven't <laughs> been making original movies in a long time. Mm. I don't know if I told the story before. When I, I was in college in 1998, I, w I was given an assignment where we had to explain the top 50 movies of that year. And I went... 50? Yeah, yeah. Not, not in detail, but it was, it was almost like a combination of artistic and financial and, and explain audiences and a whole thing like that. And I went through the top 50 movies of 1998, and I realized that 48 of them were wholly unoriginal. And we, I mean financially successful. What were the two that were? 
well, I'll explain. First, there were there was the there was a, like a buddy cop stuff. There'd be like Rush Hour or something like that, and then there would be the disaster movie, and there would be this, and there would be the remake or the sequel or the adaptation of this novel. Or the, did the know. Matrix come out in ninety eight? Ninety nine. See, I like that. Right, but it's derivative. You know, that's, but there are some. Well, not really. There aren't really original ideas. Yeah, There's but it an came original out, visual look. Yes, and it came out with a wholly original answer to the Keanu Reeves problem which is get someone who actually can speak the English language to do all the talking and let Keanu just leap about. Yes, that does solve that problem. It, it solved it. Per- no one had figured it out before then. It, se- it would seem to be a simple solution. Get Larry Fishburne, to, who can actually speak the English language and beautifully to do all the talking and let Keanu just... Yeah, but he's just- still, as they call him, the magical black man. I mean... He's Cowboy Curtis, man. He's Cowboy Curtis. <laughs> the 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 uh, Green Mile, that sort of thing. Uh, Legend of Bagger Vance stuff. Uh, but anyway, so... I got I, no problem with Fish, man. And he's got the money now. He's on one of the CSI Law right. & Order things. No, I don't have a problem. He can do it all, whatever get he wants. Get the money. Get the money. Get the house. Get the kids' college paid for. I won't watch the TV show. Well, but his kids obviously need money if she's appearing in pornos. Oh, oh right. How about that? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, See, uh, is it weird? See, uh, we say we don't live in a post-racial society, but we've got two like profoundly embarrassing things happening to black stars in America, and I don't think they're getting as much press as they should. I think if they happen to white people, they get a lot more press. Look at what Morgan Freeman did. Are you talking about Tracy Morgan or Morgan Freeman? No, Morgan Freeman. Tracy Morgan want to make you pregnant. But aside from that, no, he's different. Uh, Morgan Freeman like married his third wife's granddaughter. Nobody talks about that. Why? Because he's the voice of God. And well, they covered it up with a with a car accident, so they would cover his divorce. Yeah, come on now, man! It's just he's just a guy. But but also, who cares? <laughs> oh, TMZ should care. Yeah, but why should you care about TMZ? I'm on Adam. Carolla. I like I'm a, TMZ. I'm on Adam Carolla's side on that, and I will rarely say that. In which he doesn't understand why celebrities don't get paid for the appearances that they make since TMZ is making money off of it. And I know they're public figures, and, but it's, they're simp- there's no... There's, context is unimportant on TMZ. They just shoot them, and it, it's like they might as well get That's feed. right. And, and I am totally on his side because it's a okay. pointless, smug... Oh, is it smug show? Oh, I love it. Um, I love it. And, and so like hypocritical to the point of you know looking down, but also creating problems. Really. Yes, yes, yes. Because and, Hollywood... and hurting journalism and, and just doing everything bad. Yeah. That that makes, you know, conversation not work. And... I agree. I agree. That's why I love it, because uh, when uh, an industry is indeed a fetid, stinking swamp, there's nothing you can do to make it better. You may as well just wallow in it. And uh, and let me tell you uh, something else about TMZ that TMZ to me is like watching a foreign movie without subtitles. The great foreign movie, you can enjoy certain foreign movies without subtitles, even if you don't know the language. I can say you can probably watch every single commercial without the sound on and know exactly what's going on because it's made to be understood regardless of whether you're paying a little or a lot of attention. I can watch an entire segment, an entire half hour of TMZ 
I swear to you. A lot of people think what I do is hyperbole and I'm kind of exaggerating the truth or just lying through my teeth in order for some kind of effect. Yeah, I'm having a hard time words. anyone could sit through a half hour of TMZ. I in, in a row. I have, I swear to you, sat through entire half hours of TMZ and not known anything about any of the people they're talking about. Oh, no, I totally believe that. I do not know who the fuck these people are. But it doesn't matter. It's it's like watching a Kurosawa movie all in Japanese. It Although maybe that's not an apt metaphor, but maybe it is. It doesn't matter. But that's just simply the, the way that pop culture is divided into these small mm-hmm. niche things. And when you cannot recognize someone on TMZ, that's not really... I know that Mila Kunis, is that her name, mm-hmm. is probably on a television show and probably they're trying to get her to be a movie star. Right. But I don't know what television She's show... She's actually very good in Black Swan, though. So. Okay, fine. <laughs> Which she, I believe, was nominated for. You know where I like Natalie Portman? The Professional. I thought she was really good in that. With Jean Reno? No, I know. I was you. You were thinking about discussing Lolita, and couldn't couldn't express the sexuality when, if you watch the longer version of Leon, it's uh, or The Professional as it's been here. It's basically Natalie Portman attempting to seduce a forty-year-old man. That is correct. Uh, and she is in control. Yes. And that's okay. The middle 25 minutes that they cut out of the American release is all seduction. And it's, really? It's great. Yeah. How do I see that? Because I thought she was wonderful in if that. They released the long version here. Uh, in plenty of different ways you can see it. Uh, but it's called Leon because that was the original title. Mm-hmm. And it runs 25 minutes longer. And it's 25 minutes right in the center of the movie. And it turns what is fairly generic action movie most of the time to something much larger scale much more meaningful and i've never said anything like that about a luke Besson film ever i you know what luke Besson is one of those crazy foreign guys who's in love with america and in really in love with anything like hip-hop i love when is he french right he's french yes i love when french people like love american black culture and they like well, try he edited hip-hop into when he when yeah he i know it's like it's so Bach, funny which is a thai martial arts movie and he, he edited hip-hop into this basically period piece. Yeah. It made no sense. It was like when they edited The White Kid into The Forbidden Kingdom with Jackie Chan and Jet Li. Yeah, I, I love when French people love American black culture and like try and treat it with reverence, and they always get it like crazy and fucked up. Well, Besson up. has been a factory for a long time. He basically puts yeah. out seven or eight movies a year. They're all basically the same. And if mo- a movie like Taken makes money, that, that means that we're going to get seven or eight more. Of He's like, like the like French like, uh, uh, Tarantino Rodriguez guy over there. You know, It's just like uh, somewhere in the credits is his name, and you don't know what he did. Right. Well, Rodriguez does everything on his movies, though. So okay, all right. That, I mean, that's that. That's what's interesting when you watch some of his. You know, some of the bad ones, like the last two Spy Kids movies, are, are different. But he will have not just written, directed, edited, and shot a movie. He will have written the music. He will have done the set design. He will do everything on what is essentially mm. a forty million dollar movie that looks like it costs a lot more. But I like uh, the Fifth Element. I adore the Fifth Element. I think it's great. You don't like it? That's Bassan, right? Yeah, Chris Tucker is problematic in it for me. He's very irritating in it. Hey, listen to me. They I'm, just they couldn't they wouldn't deal with the fact that the character was gay, and they just wouldn't they well, wouldn't deal with it. You know what? I I took a I, now I don't think Chris Tucker is talented, and I've seen his stand up, and it's not funny. He's very funny in Jackie Brown, though. He's only in a few minutes. But yeah, 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 he's good. He's good. 
Um, and then they shoot him. Right. But that's about the perfect amount of Chris Tucker. Yeah. But I love when uh, French people hate absolutely everything except black people from America. And black people from America, uh, f- the French absolutely adore. And I think probably they started to adore them in the 20s when black people, black performers in America figured out that there was a country they could go to and stay in a nice hotel. Rooftop. Yeah, and they went there and they did. And God bless France for being, you know, non-apartheid uh, in the 20s and 30s. And a lot of black musicians never came back, except the French accepted the great uh, black performers uh, like Sidney Bechet, but they couldn't tell the difference between the great ones and the really mediocre ones like Josephine Baker, who is not a talented person who could not sing, nor could she dance. She's, she's entertaining in a way, but uh, she's really couldn't have earned that kind of living in the United States where she had really talented performers, even in a segregated United States like Ethel Waters and others competing against her. But but the interesting thing about France is they welcomed every black person from America. But as soon as they started emigrating there from like Africa, then they put them in ghettos and now they have riots there. You know, it, they just reach their limit. It's like, oh, certain amount of black people, okay, if they like dress in tuxedos and have dance bands. But no, just these people from Senegal... All right, DJ Solar gets the pass. Your thoughts? <laughs> that was that was rhetorical. It seemed like it was. Rhetorical. I don't know. It was French. It was French. Okay. Well, I don't speak any French, so I apologize. Oh, uh, that's all right. And uh, while we're not on the subject, anything, okay. Adam, your turn. So, since we take uh, suggestions for films that are not on TV that we will show, I will give anybody a sense of what we will be showing in October. It's not a quite finalized schedule, but certainly we'll be showing Bernard Rose's Paper House, which is a wonderful, wonderful horror movie, sort of for kids. He made Candyman and Immortal Beloved. I want to show an um, early 80s movie. I want to show Death Watch with Harvey Keitel. I have the uncut version of that. And that actually is a what very. What they cut out? About 20 minutes of development, actually, uh, in the middle somewhere, like in and out. Basically, they simplified everything Mm. because it's a really interesting movie. Uh, One of those like Frenchmen got some money because he made some, you know, foreign film that that hit big. And uh, so they give him some money and then he can make a movie that uh, the studios hate and they bury. And then he goes back to France fairly typical Mm -hmm. situation and it's about um harvey keitel in the future has a camera behind his eyes implanted and in this future uh nobody dies except when this woman finds out she's dying so he follows her around with his camera and shoots and it's a tv show and it's made 1980 and you would not believe how relevant it is by the way we were talking about how uh movies are lit today and of course i can't stand the shaky cam and um, shutter I, speed stuff probably irritates you too, but yeah, uh, I really the, the gladiator look that they've been using for a while. Yeah, uh, I just think the basic way uh, what a, a movie should do with an action sequence is to um, treat it like a dance sequence. Back off. Allow you to know what is going on. Mm-hmm. Drain the chaos out of it and demystify the complexity so you can follow who is shooting whom. That's why you should go see Drive, because he does that. Okay, and and I think everything from the shaky cam to the shutter flutter to the darkly lit shit is just a cover 
for the fact that the director and or the editor does not know how to montage does not know how to demystify so they say we're putting you right in the center of the thing well what the hell's going on now i watched i know this might be pedestrian i watched the first uh matt damon uh he loses his memory identity the first one you could follow everything. You the, could. The editing is, you know, I don't know why there was such a claim for the second two because the editing was atrocious. I don't know who's chasing who in the car scenes. Totally agree. And and you know what's funny is that that those two were were heralded the last two movies. And I didn't know which of the two I I saw the, the first dr- one. The and same then director I saw- made Green Zone, which you can totally tell what's going on the entire time. Huh. And okay. and it, they promoted it like a Bourne movie when it's really a war movie. That's sort of obvious, but it's very well made. And it's the same director as the last two Bourne movies. And you're like, w- how come this is coherent? How come I can tell what's going on? And that was a change of director because Doug Liman, who made the first film, also made Go and Swingers. And so there's a slower pace to everything that, that works in the Bourne Day. So you can actually see you know, the action, what's going on. There's not, it's not uh, hyper cut as the Paul Greengrass stuff is. So yeah, I totally, I'm, I'm in agreement. There's, there's stuff like the, the opening 20 minutes in Casino Royale. It never gets as good as that. There's that mm-hmm. great chase in the, in the opening Casino Royale. Right, where they do that, uh, what is that urban thing? Um, they, they have a sport now where you like jump through uh, Well, I mean, there's, always, there's always been capoeira, but there's also... Is that what it's called? Well, I was going to call it Taibo. I no, knew no, that no. was wrong. Capoeira is, is <laughs> uh, early 90s mostly, and uh, it's a French thing that you're talking about. Okay. That I've totally, uh, parkour. That's it, parkour. That uh, basically that uh, Luc Besson in, in introduced to the U.S., though it had been popularized long before, mm-hmm. uh, with his District Thirteen films, not related to District Nine. See, I was fine with District Nine and the shaky cam and the graininess, because the conceit was yeah, and I wish they had either kept that conceit mm-hmm. or made the whole movie as a fiction thing, because mm-hmm. I think you can't have both the documentary side and the fiction thing. It makes the the third act of District 9 is very well put together, but it is irrelevant to the movie, basically. Yeah, and there's just something refreshing about not recognizing anybody in a movie. Yeah, because then you don't know who's going to die. Yeah, you don't, exactly. That's the big advantage of that sort of thing. That's so refreshing. It's like, good, I don't know where this is. You know, that's why I still, you know, I know Europe fairly well, but one of the reasons I like the Bourne movies is, you know, I'm really tired of them chasing each other up Pacific Coast Highway. I mean, when movies are shot in America, it's like, oh my God. Well, the Bourne movies, especially the second two, are like ads for airlines mm. because they're changing locations so often. And I think I wrote about this in in a review of uh, Quantum of Solace where I talked about they go to European countries because they want to show off the scenery, but that means that the villain is always going to be either there or five steps behind. And the only place that they can actually trade information or feel safe is in very poor parts of usually like Romania or, you know, things where they can shoot cheap so they can shoot longer scenes. Not, uh, no, they shot in some very nice places in the firstborn. And what about Ronan? I mean, those that's had to be some of the, the most exquisite, those were Riviera shots. Sure, but that's 13 years ago at this point. What I'm getting at is the way that th- those movies, the globetrotting stuff is constructed now, mm. where it's travelogue instead right. of an action movie. I don't really need to see that stuff, even in a Bond movie. But they're always showing you different, because the locations don't matter. And then maybe they realize that. And so they, if they just show you a new thing. It's like, we don't have a reason to go to the next scene, so we'll just go to a new country, and maybe that'll work. Yeah, but still, uh, when when you see something that you don't normally see, it stands out. One of the things 
when um, Francis McDormand ate in an all-you-can-eat place in Fargo. Mm-hmm. And it was a place that I'd been in like many, many times. And I just thought to myself, yeah, people never eat in places like this in movies, but we do. Right. That's, well, are you that's why I about, like this. Are you talking about the, the scene in the middle of the movie? That, uh, yeah, I, not I, where she meets the Asian guy in Minneapolis. The, that's my favorite scene in the movie. That too. But first she sits with her. It's like a, a golden harvest, you know, a golden right, right. corral, all you can eat for 10 nights. I said, this is where we eat, mm-hmm. but this is where Hollywood people, even if the movies are about the middle class, never eat here. They only eat at a place that they can promote. So, like, you'll get a movie like uh, mid-'90s romantic fluff like Bye Bye Love, which is nothing more than an ad for McDonald's. So about 10 scenes take place in a McDonald's, and you can always see what they're eating. Or else someplace... Or or, or any Adam Sandler movie about anything somehow has product placement like that. Or something so charmingly, archly retro, like the grill at the end of a Pulp Fiction, you know? Oh, this is where normal people eat. If people say, let's see, where shall we eat that looks exactly like... go to Hollywood to see famous people and run up to them and get their autograph. People go to New York to say to see famous people and to ignore them <laughs> because you're in New York and you don't do that. And to watch them have lunch. I was in Little Italy uh, a, a few years ago and Stephen Sharippa, who played Bobby Bacala, right, right. Uh, was on the street like right in front of me with a couple of uh, shopping bags. He right. was shopping. He had cheeses and shit. He's right. in Little Italy. You don't go there to sit down and eat because those uh, well, restaurants suck. It's only like half but a they still have some good stores where right. you can buy good cheeses. And somebody from across the street, they didn't cross the street. They say, hey, Bobby. Bobby Bacala. And as soon as that got out of his voice, somebody else like right next to him yelled, leave him the fuck alone. (laughs) That doesn't happen in Hollywood. (laughs) Well, you move to Hollywood because you want that to happen. You just pretend you don't. Right. Well, okay. But only in New York would the other guy say, leave him the fuck alone. This is New York. You're allowed to live your life. The other thing that happens, and and in the interview uh, about Drive, the director talks about how most of Hollywood is about going on blind dates, where your agent will send you out with some other person that is also famous and can perhaps come up with an idea, and you go have lunch. Mm -hmm. And it's like brainstorming, essentially. But it's a blind date where you go sit there, you may not even know the person. And it happens apparently... Most of the lunches in L.A. are like that. And they do it with comedians, too. I don't know if you know this, but Hollywood producers will bring in comedians to pitch them. But really, it's because they're bored and they want to be entertained for 45 minutes. And you they're never pitch gonna... them a script? Yeah, yeah. They think, they think that's, what, you know, the, right. that's the, the way that they, they get them to come in. And then the comedian sits there and entertains them for 45 minutes. And then they never talk to them again. They just wanted to be entertained for that 45 minutes. They had no intention of offering them anything. Is that how that cartoon happened with the Jerry Seinfeld in it? <laughs> B-movie? Yeah. I'm sure. It. I'm sure. Did, did that uh, break Jerry? I mean, I mean, not break. I mean, he's not going to do that anymore, is he? Well, I don't know. I mean, he <laughs> whored himself up pretty badly for that for that movie. I know. And because, well, was his own money in it? I don't know. But, I mean, he was producing it. He's probably still got some left. I would assume so. <laughs> I, I assume that the Seinfeld syndication money will pay for his pants for a while. You know, I uh, I just uh, happened to pull up uh, Kate Winslet, and uh, she's the exception that proves my point. You can still be respected 
and show your naked body anytime you fucking feel like it. But you got to be a good actor, too. And that's what Kate Winslet knows. She said, I can be naked whenever I feel like it because I can act. It's only these broads that can't act that feel like they have to withhold the titties because they know that the only reason that people want them to take their clothes off is they haven't done it. It's the mystery part. Is that no, is that. They know it's all they have to offer. Right. But I have my talent to offer. But once they so show you know it, what? there's no mystery anymore. You know what? It's like a Chinese dinner. The titties, they come with. <laughs> Am I right, Adam? In a sense. Um, Romance and cigarettes. You like that movie? Is it to be liked? Yeah, I like that movie, man. Uh, uh, I, I know it. I saw it. it. It's Tuturo very campy. Or, very campy. Or what's his name? Tucci. Tuturo directed it's Tuturo, it. right. Yeah, and it's a bunch of singing and bad singing. But, you know, so is, I love it, so is an, um, uh, everyone says I love you, so that's all right. That's different. That's, you know, Woody Allen being uh, uh, in love with um, uh, Broadway and uh, trying to bang all the women that are in his movies. Um, Tuturo did this. I don't know why I did it, but I really liked it. And it's it's a movie. It's an old-fashioned right. Hollywood movie. Well, that's why he couldn't get it distributed for so long. That's why there was that long delay, three years or so. Yeah. It's an old-fashioned Hollywood movie in that you say, Hey, that's Amy Sedaris. Right. <laughs> that's Bobby Carnival. I know who that is. He was in The Station Agent. Right. Yeah. The so sta- what you qu- your question was about nudity. Uh, oh, okay. So the... I can. I think it's about withholding it to a point. If if they know that that's their claim to fame at that, uh, it's they know it's the only thing they have to offer. Although that as long is as all, they're not nude, they may well be taken seriously as an actor I or an should, actress. I think it should free them up. I mean, I think the fact that there's all these leaked cell phone photos now should free them up to do whatever they want. But see, Kate Winslet knows that she's an actress; that she doesn't have to take off her clothes, and therefore. She takes off her clothes. Seriously. Yeah. Well, I'm. Mirren, I, I'm, same thing. I'm now maybe it's because they're I'm trying British. To think of a good actress who who withheld it and then it came out and then she became a better actress. But it's difficult. No. Because I've never thought Scarlett Johansson was a good actress. She isn't. So I've, uh, my girlfriend calls her the Sonambulist. I think. Is it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, just because she's going to put you to sleep pretty pretty quickly because she's only got one tone and one note, and. You know, she had her stuff leaked, I guess, earlier in the week or last week or something. Mm-hmm. And I was more impressed with her ass than with her tits, by the way. Thanks. I think she's lost some weight. <laughs> Just anatomy. It's not sexual. Yes. Uh, but but I, then again, I see that's the thing. The whole first shot of uh, Lost in Translation is Scarlett Johansson's ass yes. through absolutely transparent panties. So what's the fucking difference, girl? What's the fucking difference why because that movie was artistic and shot by a woman guess what the picture your ass in the toilet was shot by a woman too Uh, you isn't there a symmetry there you mean i'll let sophia coppola shoot my ass that's okay because she's she's got a vagina too then it's artistic but if a man shoots my ass it's not right huh is that it i don't know what it is that's probably part of it i mean also also lost in translation is uh in a sense, Coppola's uh, dream version of herself because she's not as, you know, sexually interesting as, as Scarlett Johansson is, obviously. 
and her whole thing when she was married to Spike Jones, and it, it was just like it was like a weird fantasy. I enjoyed Lost in Translation very much. I like it very much uh, for one of the reasons we spoke about earlier. Uh, Europe, it was a love letter or a strange love letter to uh, to Japan. Mm-hmm. And, and he, not racist at all, because those game shows are exactly like that. Oh, no, not that's at all. A, that's real. Whenever they all. showed Japan, that's, that's exactly Yeah, it right. shows that another culture isn't strange or weird, that it's just confusing. And that means it's about us being confused mm-hmm. or about the stranger being confused. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and without question, Kate Winslet... I didn't watch the Emmys, but I watched. Uh, I looked at all the snapshots of the ridiculous bridesmaid gowns, and then there was Kate Winslet saying, "I look at this. Look at me. I don't need ruffles. Fuck you all." By the way, but you know, here's the unfair Mildred part. Mildred Pierce was she... absolutely awful. What's that? Mildred Pierce was awful. I didn't see it. I've oh, seen the original. Don't. I didn't. Yeah, the the original. Well, you know, can you watch a Joan Crawford movie and and not think you're watching a Joan Crawford movie? No, I it's mean, an enjoyable can't. yeah camp pot boiler. So, uh, but the, I'll keep using the word camp. The thing, it's all right. You can yeah. do it. Here's the problem, though. Kate Winslet is very attractive. Wouldn't she it, sure is. Wouldn't it be Wouldn't it be more honorable in a sense if she she looked like Kathy Bates? Yeah, and you know what. Kathy Bates was nude in the hot tub with the... Uh, right. uh, and people thought it was gross. I liked it. I, thought, I it was, thought she looked pretty damn good. I thought... Well, I didn't think that, but I was like... Okay, no, I, I, thought, I, thought, she, I, thought, I thought she was a lot... She looked a lot better than I thought she was going to look. I thought really. to myself, people are naked sometimes. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. That, uh, there's no, it wasn't shocking so much as, you know, because it was a heavy person. It was more like, well, you don't get to see this, like a real person naked. How refreshing. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I'll give two women remarkably similar because of their attitudes. No, three women um, uh, similar because of their attitudes and two who are similar because of their professions. Mirren, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kate Winslet. But again, if Helen Mirren wasn't gorgeous, what would we, you know, we wouldn't care. Yeah, she'd be Judy Dench. And, you know, Judy Dench was beautiful when she was young. Kat, uh, Helen Mirren happens to still be gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I'll just pull this name out of a hat. Debbie Harry. All these three women are all talented and their attitude towards their sexuality is the same. And it is, yeah, I'm sexy. So what? Get, so what? Well, Debbie Harry really not to express it in film and videodrome, but that's probably. I'm talking about her uh, on stage performances. I'm sexy, so what? But that's the front you have to put on when you're a female performer. Well, there's a very... No, well, there's a difference between Debbie Harry and, well, whatever, a Madonna or a Helen Mirren and a Julia Roberts. One is intelligent and the other one is very, very of ordinary intellect. Madonna is aggressively not intelligent. Julia Roberts is not intelligent. They don't have the intellectual sophistication to separate their art from their sexuality. They've all been bound together and they don't know the difference between one or the other. Therefore, Julia Roberts will never play Queen Elizabeth or I don't know who's the American version Eleanor Roosevelt Madonna's pretty canny and I have to give her credit for being somewhat relevant for 30 years who Madonna difficult to change your style so frequently to the point that you've changed your style enough where people think that 
you know, someone else is ripping you off when all you've done is co-opt from various sources and attempt to make yourself relevant all the time. So she's, there has to be a modicum of intelligence there in order to, to Adam, be on top of that so much. With all due respect, I think uh, you are confusing the word relevant with visible. <laughs> relevant would mean selling records, being in movies, still, you know. No, I think relevant has a qualitative uh, meaning as in meaningful um to paraphrase a mr bernstein in a very famous movie it's no trick to being famous if all you care about is being famous and as a matter of fact i have a theory that it's easier to be famous when talent is not part of the equation but because then you she, never she, have to spend any of your time practicing your dance moves or your scales if all your energy is just being able to like call the paparazzi and say i'm going to be at the at the palm at 3 p.m and just being before the public eye i mean that would explain the fact that why the most famous people in our culture today have no discernible vocation no discernible talent kim kardashian is more famous than kate winslet she just is because she doesn't ever have to learn a script all she has to do is concentrate on being famous and that's why she's so goddamn famous because she puts all her effort and all of her agents and her publicist effort into being before you could our ignore eye. her. I managed to. I know. I know. But no. Can you really? Sure. You knew who I was talking about, right? Yeah. Well, I, I just because I know who you're talking about doesn't yeah. mean I know anything about her. I've never watched her show. OK. Neither and I'm not am being I. a snob. It's neither just like... am I. But I know she's famous. I know she's really, really famous. Sure. The, the, the way you know who she was is if if you watch TV at all, you'll get commercials with her in it. There's no yeah. way to miss that. You can ignore it. But what I was giving credit, Madonna. It's like Mila Kunis. I know she's famous. I just don't know why. <laughs> I don't know what she's in. I've never seen anything she was in ever. I thought ever. you saw the Black Swan. No, no. I, I meant I, I knew the name. Okay. I knew the name. I tapped Dan sideways and brought up a Natalie Portman movie that I had seen. Right. Uh, but with Mad I'm not suggesting that Madonna is all powerful and all talent. What I'm suggesting is, you said, well, she doesn't have to work. Well, Madonna worked on, her, worked on her dance moves, worked on her singing, which she was not very good at initially. It still really isn't, but can hide behind digital. Borderline is a really good song, man. Not that... not vocally. Okay. No, but it's a really good song. Yes, and it is. It's also the finding like good beats, good producers. This is all skill. That was the last good song, by the way. <laughs> Arguably. Um, no, no other good song. Okay. <laughs> I'm telling you, that was a really good song. The, always always listen to the first hit a lot because that's what turned a an obscure person into a famous person because it was good. And know that after that, it's all going to down, go downhill. Whitney Houston, How Will I Know? Really good song. Everything else is shit. <laughs> that seems a little reductive, but okay. Okay, fine. And, and, and entirely subjective. How will I know? That's a good song, man. Well, That's a good song. She, she, Whitney Houston got by because she's got an incredible voice, and she's uh, less relevant because she stopped using it. Okay, which would mean that she's stopped being famous for being famous. She be, you know, she does that. Uh, see that melisma. See, you, you got to love Patti Labelle and blame her. Patti Labelle is the first person who did that mainstream. Uh, and I know it goes back to the Gregorian chants. Well, Jennifer Holiday, all that. After Patty. Yeah. But then 
everybody started to do it. And that going, uh, called melisma, the, the constant wavering of the notes without any control at all is the vocal version of the shaky cam. The fact that you can't hold a fucking note is not being covered. Not to me anyway, by you going, uh, I'm telling you, I know the truth. Okay. And Kate Winslet says so. Just she's naked and she's talented. And those are two really good things. But if we could take the attraction out of it, I mean, that's what I'm that's how you tell a or actually decent actress. You don't have the sexual portion as a distraction. Wouldn't that be more interesting? Yeah. Oh, and I like them, too. Uh, let's see who's ugly. That's a good actress actor. I don't know. See, I like a lot of guy Paul, actors. Paul, and G- I, Paul Giamatti. Great actor. Really good. Although he hasn't done anything that I've loved since the Harvey Pekar movie. You didn't see Sideways? Oh, man. You like that? Yeah. Oh, man. That was like really heartwarming. No, it wasn't. That was so, it's such a cynical movie. Okay. All right. Really? You took I'm that surprised at... at you, Adam. That seems a little too heartwarming for you. No, that's a very cynical movie. Okay, but it still seems heartwarming. I mean, you know, uh, what's Sandra Oh beats up uh, Thomas Hayden Church with a helmet for five minutes, and that's a good and that's a good thing. And and uh, <laughs> they're chased down the, the street by a naked man who wants to, you know, hurt him. And she's bang doggy style, really graphically, like just for a second, right in the middle of yeah. it. I like that part. I sat right in front of her at the Cable Ace Awards. Well, she well, said hello had, to me. She was nice. There's cynicism in the in the movie. They're, they don't. The ending is not a cop-out. The ending suggests that he is not going to end up with her. And that's fine. Although I would argue that the best ending would have been in the, in the fast food place maybe two scenes before. I'm okay with the way they ended it. I liked Sideways. I just thought Sideways, because there was nobody really famous or really very attractive in it, well, except for Sandra Owen. And Virginia Madsen? Virginia Madsen is so attractive. She really really is i really like virginia madsen and thomas hayden church does an impression of tom berenger and looking for mr goodbar and actually okay (laughs) he basically his facial structure is the same as whatever tom berenger looked like in 1977 it's very weird Um, but i i still think think that because okay none of them are really famous it had it, it got the imprimatur of Oh, this is a little art movie that It's not an art film though. It's just I know, a, but but people talked about it as just, if it was. Well, because it's all talking. It was like a little That's I mean right. all Alexander Payne And it's about wine. Talking. You know, yeah. Election is all talking and that's uh, that's probably his best film. But, you know. Oh, the Reese the 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 only Reese Witherspoon movie where she was good yeah. before she became really Reese Witherspoony. Yes. Yeah. I like that movie. Yeah, and but Matthew that's, a, that's the same director as, as Sideways, and and that now yeah. that's a cynical movie. They're all cynical movies. Yeah. Citizen Ruth, his first film, very cynical. Did you we did. ever talk about the hot spot? Uh, yeah, we did. Oh, baby, I love that movie because um, you talk about <laughs> Jennifer Connelly, and I talk about the distracting moment where it looks like Don Johnson's penis is the, is uh, about four feet long, and it may or may not be a belt buckle, but the way they framed it, yeah. Uh, uh, Virginia Madsen and Jennifer Connelly naked in the same movie. It doesn't get any better than that. Well, I wish the movie were a little better and shorter. Honestly. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Pacing is, is a, sort of an issue in, you know, yeah, we, right. in Dennis Halberson. We showed a backtrack. We showed the director's cut of backtrack, which is actually like a, a, a flawed, interesting movie, like an interesting failure. 
and pacing again an issue. Like he doesn't know how to like move a scene along in any way that would make you want to watch the next scene. So Hotspot, maybe you notice all the nudity the same way that when people watch Blade Runner, they're like, oh, the sets and the music. Well, it's because the script's terrible. That's why you notice all these individual elements. You're not supposed to notice individual elements. Which Blade Runner is that? What? There's 30 of them, you know. Well, all of them look good. All of them have good music. All of them have nice sets, you know, and effects. We but- need to do a theme show, Adam. And the theme show is futuristic movies of long ago where they got it wrong. Like Harrison Ford using them? a phone booth. <laughs> well, I was going to say Harrison Ford doing a Chinese accent in the worst scene in that movie. But you know, Oh, right. Yeah. yeah, it's a pretty embarrassing scene. Or that Better than scene. James Caan doing the, you know, they cut the James Caan doing the Chinese uh, accent in certain cuts of uh, Rio Bravo. I mean, yeah, Rio Bravo, the John Wayne, the Howard Hawks remake of uh, the other movie with uh, Dean Martin. Wait, Rio Bravo? I thought Rio, Bra- Rio Lobo was the remake of Rio Bravo. No, Rio Bravo is the remake. Gee, and they, they covered this in Get Shorty, too. <laughs> Because I thought Rio Bravo first, Rio Lobo, then you have Assault on Precinct 13, it's the same movie, and then you have the remake of Assault on Precinct 13, and you have like a whole bunch of ripoffs. The first Ghost movie Mars, was you know. Dean Martin, Ricky Nelson, Walter Brennan, and John Wayne. Imagine if you had some device. El Dorado. Could, El okay. Dorado. I was going to say, imagine you had some device, you could look it up. Right. Rio Bravo is the first one with Walter Brennan and Dean Martin and Ricky Nelson. That's what I said. Uh, El Dorado is the second one with uh, Mitchum and James Caan and uh, Arthur Honeycutt. And if they could have put Walter Brennan into the second one, that would have been the best movie. For those of us younger than 40, James Caan once had hair, and I know that's a surprise. And he was the kid in in that one. And to get in the back of the uh, bar, he puts on Robert a Duvall hat. has never had hair, so don't worry about that. Yeah. Uh, he he puts on a Chinese accent. So here you got this six foot. Well, actually, Khan isn't that tall. Khan uh, is one of those guys you don't know how tall he is, because in the mo- in the two movies I keep seeing him in, he's next to Pacino, who's four feet tall, or he's sitting down most of the time in a bottle rocket, right? And or he's next to John Wayne, who's six foot four, right? So I don't know how tall James Khan is. I, I really don't know. I oh, and if, I had a question I need about something this. in the foreground for scale, Martin. Ha, have you have you been watching the Kirk Douglas marathon on TCM? Because you should be. Oh, I saw my one of my favorites, which is um, Ace in the Hole. Ace in the Hole, baby. What a great movie that is. Yeah, that I hold, don't. That holds up so well. It's so relevant now. Amazing I, how relevant it is. I don't pray. Nealon bags my stockings. The only thing that doesn't work is the ending. Why? When he gets his comeuppance. Well, no. Because in it, reality, he would have become famous? Well, He'd have been I don't able mean to that part. It? I mean how long it's drawn out because of the moral code of the time. Oh, right. Okay. Like, you know, he gets shot, and then, you know, how long does it take? Like, what, two days <laughs> to right, die? Right. And I didn't ruin anything that's obvious from the bit. But it's a, it's a fantastic, totally relevant movie. But What's worse than the shooting, he should have been able to spin it so he got even more famous. Right. Anybody as cynical as him mm-hmm. would have been able to spin even the guy dying in the mine as as a good story. Right. So, and he would have, should have been able to get on top anyway. And then, now if that movie would have been made in the late 60s, early 70s, he'd have had an office at the New York Times and then looked in the mirror and said, what does it all mean? Right. Well, I showed a short before we showed uh, Farewell, My Lovely, the uh, Mitchum 
film the from the 70s, one, yeah. fantastic. Holds up really well too. Yeah. We sh- we showed the big story, which is a claymation short with Frank Gorshin doing impressions of Kirk Douglas, and it's fantastic. It's a minute and a half. It must be on YouTube somewhere. I don't know. I have a copy of it off a, another disc that I have, but uh, it's it's just a great short. It's basically Kirk Douglas. The newspaper man versus Kirk Douglas, the boss versus Kirk Douglas, the rascally newspaper man. Like it's all three at the same time, and they're like pushing chins. Back a, to Nichols and May. Okay, My, they never. Ishtar um, has an, a fantastic opening twenty minutes. <laughs> the rest of it, yeah, not very good. I get, but the, the first twenty minutes are really funny, legitimately funny. I get the feeling that Mike Nichols and his wife, who went to the Sorbonne, uh, Diane Sawyer. Mm-hmm are, you know, they're in quiet times in their $40 million townhouse, like three blocks from the Metropolitan, and they're relaxed, and Mike Nichols takes off his hair, and they dis- they say, what do you think the rubes will go for this week, honey? Because never has anyone who uh, uh, has attended the Sorbonne ever talked down to me as much as Diane Sawyer has. And I don't even watch that guy. I don't watch any news on the networks, but you're a rebel. Yeah. Saying. Right. Mike Nichols just can continually plays to the middle. I mean, it's so relentless. Can he make something? One could easily argue that James L. Brooks does the same thing, but because of that, he had the power to make the yeah, Simpsons but James and, and, Brooks... let, and, and let them do whatever they wanted. They can't, Fox can't t- do anything with The Simpsons. They just send them the show and run it as is. And that's, that's why that's useful for someone to pander and make mediocre things. The Simpsons, the shark has not only been jumped, the shark is dead. The shark has been cut up for sushi. The shark has all been eaten yes, and shit he's, out he's and has been turned for, into landfill. He's been responsible for all 20 years in which there are many bits of genius uh, in the first five well of course 10 i would argue maybe season three to about season nine are really great the the equation for the simpsons is the simpson comes out it's good some unfunny punk named what mcfarland seth mcfarland copies the simpsons badly calls it what's it called well he has three shows now what was the first one? Family Guy. Okay. He copies The Simpsons horribly. It's on for a year or so. They throw it off the air. A few more years go by. The Simpsons becomes a bad parody of itself. Fox calls Seth MacFarlane and says, okay, you can come back now <laughs> because now your shitty copy of the original good Simpsons is now just as good as the present-day shitty Simpsons. So there's a sense of symmetry here. He comes back. He becomes the most famous man. You should write a parallax with. view, but about the Simpsons and family Isn't guy. that what happened? Do you want me to explain what Isn't... actually happened, or is the fantasy version better? I think the fantasy version is better. Okay. What what actually happened? The DVD sales for Family Guy were so good that okay. it made financial sense for them to bring it back. Well, the last South Park that I enjoyed before it jumped the shark was about Family Guy, which is a perfect symmetry, I think, with the manatees. Okay. I don't watch South Park consistently enough to... Well, this is about seven or eight years ago. Okay. It's about... I, I, I enjoy it, but I don't actively sit there and watch it. I don't... Mm-hmm. Like, in five-minute spurts, it seems, work, it seems to work for me. I've... I always found the same thing about Mystery Science Theater 2000 is 10-minute chunks, it works, but I don't really want to sit there for two hours and hear other people talk over a movie. 
Because it's it's very much you know. Well, you know, I really liked the uh, when I first started watching Mystery Science Theater three thousand. I really enjoyed it uh, because well, it was exactly what I had been doing for years, mm-hmm. and uh, except there was more people than I would have in my house doing it. But then I I I read that they actually got in a room beforehand and wrote down what they were going to oh, say. Oh, they watched this stuff four or five times. And then I said, oh, man, I don't have to do that. No. <laughs> I and, can't see through Mano's Hands of Fate once. And then, and then I didn't like it as much, but then I just kind of pretended that it was like the first time they were seeing the movie, and if I can keep thinking that and not... Remember think, that it's scripted. Yeah. That they have it all timed, and yeah. then the reason they're in shadow and silhouette is so they can look down at the piece of paper. Yeah. I was really disappointed when I found out it wasn't all ad lib. Oh, well. Well, that would be pretty difficult to keep up. But then, you know, I met them at a Cable Ace Award party, and they said they liked my show, so then I forgave them. <laughs> uh, it would be a weird balancing act to to do that, you know, off the cuff. I, I remember... Uh, Greg, oh, no, it isn't. Greg, isn't. Greg, well, some of the more obscure stuff. Uh, Greg Proops used to make jokes about the fact that Whose Line Is It Anyway was all scripted, and it took them six months to film each episode, <laughs> so it made it look like it wasn't improvised. Mm-hmm. Um, well, see, kidding, I, of course. But. Yeah, I know. Well, it wasn't because some of the things fell horribly flat. Sure. And that's okay. Right. Well, they should have probably cut those. <laughs> you know, it's not like they showed it live. Obviously, this stuff's edited. You have to do that with improvised shows. One last question because we've gone a little over today. A little? Okay. Uh, with all the uh, technological advancements uh, in, in movie making where they can now take a uh, an untalented actor and make him into a six foot tall blue blue guy with a spear who still can't act any better but he's six foot tall. Are you talking about the smurfs yeah pretty much okay we, we we spoke about the avatar problem and i still haven't seen it oh, okay my uh you <laughs> want to still seems still seems like homework to me sorry my blurbs he had the best bl- i had a really good blurb for avatar which was oh my god the the ro- the the 30-foot to- uh, robot has a knife. The robot has a knife. <laughs> okay. Uh, an age where we can pretty much make anything to anything else. Is there any way... Any well, of- hold on. You, you say a knife, but what could be more threatening than a glow-in-the-dark knife? As we learned in Looking for Mr. Goodbar... In which the will Richard- be seen. Which will be seen tonight at 7 p.m. at 7141 Germantown Avenue. $7. You get free popcorn. You get prizes, you get screeners, you get uh, an essay, you get all sorts of things. Or LA Confidential, same, same problem. Also, Crow's character, it makes no sense that he lives. None. Oh, uh, well, who cares? Yeah, but it makes, but it, it hurts the movie. It makes no sense that he lives. It makes perfect sense if he is like the end of an era as, as a rep- metaphor. And, uh, you know, dying. But the fact that he goes off with the girl, I mean, it, it it's... First of all, he never would have lived in the, uh, from that action sequence, which is one where you can tell where everyone is, which I'm sure you appreciated. Do you ever watch a movie and try and uh, uh, um, uh, do the body count? It depends, but yeah. Yeah. Now, in L.A. Confidential, I lose track. Well, and I've seen track L.A. In Confidential. John Woo movie too. You know. Well, that yeah, you're right. Anyway, uh, yeah, LA, I adore L.A. Confidential. Do you agree that that he would have died in that scene, and that would have made much better sense? Yeah, but you know what? It's meaning. It's meaningless. The end. It doesn't. And you know what? No. Since that literally is a period piece, 
and it, it is a way, it is a throwback. A thematic sequel to Chinatown in a lot of ways. I enjoy it much better than Chinatown. Chinatown is, is self-consciously homage and L.A. Confidential is, is much more light on its feet. It has a sense of fun. It really does with the voiceover and the, Dan- the Danny DeVito voiceover and all that. Absolutely much more. And I think the fact that it is a kind of an open homage to that, that era, uh, a movie of that ilk made in that era would have required by code a happy ending. I'm OK with the happy ending. I am. Whether at where in the other sense, well, a movie of that era wouldn't be so violent, though, so you can't. It's it's true. You can't have it both ways. No, no, I think you can. It, it would have had just as many you could, you wouldn't killings have had, and shootings. You'd have just let the squibs you out. You wouldn't have had the gay subplot or the more detailed stuff about the prostitution ring. Or, or marijuana any. and stuff like that. Right. You're right. You're right. And it ha- and I think it, it skirts, or uh, and if you were denigrating, it vacillates between the two freedoms to, to homage and the freedoms to be post-code. And I think that's okay, too. It's what Richard Brooks did for the last 10 years of his career, actually. If you think about it, that he was not quite comfortable working outside of the code where he was prevented from doing certain things. Mm -hmm. And so there would be moments, especially in uh, uh, Fever Pitch, his last film, one of the funniest bad movies ever made, with Ryan O'Neill. It's about gambling and Giancarlo Giannini is in it. It's this mix of making a movie about 50s newspapers Mm -hmm. And it's very, very dated, uh, even at the time, as you pointed out about Looking for Mr. Goodbar, and an attempt to concede that, well, it's an R-rated movie, it's the 80s, we got to have as much violence and sex. So the violence is random, it's totally exploitive, it doesn't make any sense, it's way over the top, and then there'll be a sex scene, and there'll be this. And they don't fit into whatever he's trying to do, he's just like, well, this is how it works now, so we got to do this now. Yeah, but I forgive L.A. Confidential because, of course, you have to have realistic violence because that's what we they do don't, today. They, they don't because in L.A. Confidential, there's the one scene that makes absolutely no sense. How do they get away at when they're being interviewed, the three uh, suspects, black suspects? Mm-hmm. And they get, out of the, they get out of the interview room. There's cops everywhere. The doors are locked. Oh no! They let them out so they could be uh, so they could be killed because as long as they were in jail, they were safe, and the truth would have come out. So the fix was in. Uh, they don't. That may have been in the book. But uh, they they uh, do fled, not. They, they, uh, they don't Archie even. Bunker's friend. The, they don't the even hint at it in the movie. They just like they got out. We got to go get them. Well, you know that's that's the shorthand that was never explained. But it's I think it's, it's obvious that they let them movie, get out time. so they could be killed when they were apprehended because they couldn't have been killed in jail. But if they let them out and on the streets and they would have had a shoot the kill order then that would have been that would have solved and a shut shut up the guys who knew the truth yeah but the problem was that the apparently the um interrogations were going so well that they were gonna they thought they'd be able to convict them remember he he, he causes the guy to pee because he's so scared and he basically gets a confession no but eventually the truth might have come out and this was a way they needed these guys dead they didn't need these guys in court we know that but in the logic of the movie and what we see that scene makes no sense because there's not even the suggestion i don't agree i think um you know fletch henderson uh, was that his name in archie bunker Uh, (laughs) the guy the the chief of police you know, the, he used to be Archie Bunker's best friend in, in All in the, the Family. The, the Stretch in, Henderson. The Farmer and Babe, that's who it the was. The Farmer and Babe was Stretch Henderson, yeah, Archie Bumper, Bunker's friend in, uh, in All in the Family. He had to let them out 
in order to kill them. He couldn't have killed them, and dead men tell no tales. Even if they were black, even if it was the 50s, he couldn't take that chance. He had to make sure they were dead, and he couldn't have had them die in jail as easily as he could have had them uh, be transported. You know what would have fixed that? What? One insert shot, and it's not there. It's all right. It's all right to leave shit out. No, no, no. One shot. It's a two-hour and 20-minute movie. You could afford one shot seeing James Cromwell or some lackey or letting them out or some suggestion. Okay, but I still love the movie. I like it a lot, too. Adam Lippy, who runs the Medium Rare Cinema series at the Video Library at the following address. 7141 Germantown Avenue. But if you can, you can go to the video library.com or you can go to a regrettable moment of sincerity.com. Well, no, it's, it's just regrettable sincerity.com, but a regrettable moment of sincerity is the name of the site. So okay. Awesome. People got Google. It'll get there anyway, right? <laughs> yes, that's true. I used to have a much longer name for a website. So what was it called? We hate you and your horrendous taste and everything.com. <laughs> I like that one. So uh, uh, he's cynical. He's young. He's happening. He's now. <laughs> Everything I'm not, except for the cynical part. This has been Morning Feed. Go to Medium Rare Cinema tonight to see uh, Looking for Mr. Goodbar. You can laugh. You'll laugh. You'll, you'll cry. You'll throw things. at the, Are people allowed to throw maybe just popcorn? No? Popcorn. I think it's okay. Adam, thank you. You're welcome. You'll be back, won't you? Next time, not so long. Morning Feed, G-Town Radio, gtownradio.com. We are the sound from Germantown Community Radio. To the world. What it is is what it is.